Hi, I'm Jennifer Mulholland. And I'm Jeff Shuck. We're the co-leaders of Plenty. Thanks for joining our podcast, Plenty for Everyone. Each episode, we talk with conscious leaders like you to explore abundance in work and life, fulfillment in head and heart, and ways we can all work together to make this world a better place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plenty for Everyone. I'm Jeff Shuck, and this is Jennifer Mulholland, and we are the co-leaders of Plenty. And we are really excited today to welcome Phil Buchanan to the podcast. Phil is the president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the author of a book that came out last year called Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. And in a time when we're dealing with multiple stresses to the social system we all live in, a global pandemic, obviously, crisis in leadership on multiple levels, facing centuries of social injustice that many people are just waking up to figuring out how to solve. It's never been clear that government can't or won't address all of those problems and business Although we feel optimistic that business is trying to address many of those issues, business can't do it. So we've never needed a more effective philanthropic sector more than we do right now. And that's what Phil has spent two decades working on. So we're really excited for you to meet him and hear him talk about what effective philanthropy is and what it can do and what we need from the sector in these crazy, challenging times. So Phil, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jen. Happy to be here. Maybe let's begin and orient our listeners about who you are and where you're from and what your perspective is as we kind of tee up what Jeff just laid out around philanthropy and why it's so needed now more than ever. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Born in Toronto, grew up in Portland, Oregon, now live in Concord, Massachusetts, been the president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy for almost two decades now. So we really started out in 2001. And the goal was to try to help at that time, sort of larger institutional foundations be more effective. But our audience that we're seeking to reach is much broader now, uh, including individual donors. And really recognizing that, as Jeff said at the outset, that there's a lot that government and business can't or won't do that markets have limits, government has limits, and we have benefited over the history of this country from a really strong, vital nonprofit sector that could and should be stronger still, but that has contributed in all kinds of ways to a lot of good that we take for granted, and it needs to be supported by effective philanthropy. So Center for Effective Philanthropy, CEP.org, offers a lot of resources to try to help donors to be more effective. So that's the short version of who I am and what we're about. So you're in a lot of conversations with donors, we might imagine, and nonprofit executives. Maybe let's start at the highest level of trends that you're seeing in the nonprofit sector. In your conversations with the executive leaders and executive directors, what are you seeing as the common pain points or maybe the common challenges post-COVID or in COVID, I would say, since we're still in it, that they're considering and they're needing to adapt to in this climate of change. Responding effectively to the COVID crisis 
requires a focus on equity and on racial equity because of the data that we all know well now about the massively disproportionate negative impact, both health-wise and from an economic point of view on African-Americans, for sure, in terms of double the death rate of whites on Latinx and immigrant populations. Women have been disproportionately affected because of the industries that have been impacted by the economic crisis. Obviously, Asian and Asian Americans have been the subject of virulent racism that had in some cases has been egged on or encouraged by some of our so-called leaders. So I think there's a real just requirement in this time, whatever your goals are to think about whether you are working to address those realities. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing that is really clear right now is that some of the simplistic market and business analogies that I kind of rail against in in the book that Jeff referenced at the beginning are particularly damaging now. So the notion that, for example, that scale is always better, that bigger is always better, that small equals inefficient or ineffective, which I think is something that certainly some of the business school types and consultants who have kind of entered Philanthrolandia with their prescriptions have offered up that idea, but that's not the reality. Right now, it is often small, locally rooted organizations that have the trust of the communities that have been disproportionately impacted that are best positioned to be helpful. One of the things I want to tell people is what your voice has meant and what the Center for Effective Philanthropy has meant to the sector. One of the ways that Phil and I found each other is Phil has often writes a lot and often writes about topics that many of us feel need to be written, but that people aren't brave enough to write. And one of the topics you write about, and and I love you as a messenger for that because you and I both have MBAs and we're both in this sector. And I think both realize the limits of traditional business thinking in the philanthropic sector. So we got a little cut off by the magic of Zoom there, but one of the things you were talking about is some of the things that have been used to great effect in business actually don't work in the philanthropic sector. Things like scale, things like trying to have a national perspective. You were talking about that often the local small organizations right now are the best positioned organizations because of the power of trust they have. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not that scale is a bad thing. I mean, it absolutely is the case that some nonprofits should scale. And we can talk about which ones should and which ones shouldn't. But it is also the case that locally rooted, community-based nonprofits with the trust of the communities they serve are often the best position to be responsive in a time like this. And so we need to reject these kind of simplistic analogies or perspectives that big is always better or small means ineffective or duplicative or inefficient because that's not the case. So the other thing I was going to mention is just like the degree to which nonprofits, so on the point of the business analogy, nonprofits are facing a challenge right now that business people really can't get their minds around because it would never happen to them, which is a simultaneous massive increase in demand for what they do and decreased revenues, right? So in business, obviously revenues 
go hand in hand with demand. But if you are running an organization serving an immigrant population, I wrote a couple of things that talked about a woman in Seattle who I met who runs such an organization and they've been around 40 years. Many of the people who they helped get their first job when they came to the United States and provided other support for now suddenly unemployed as the hospitality industry takes a massive hit. Where do they go? They go to the organization that they trust that helped them when they first came to the United States. And so all of a sudden, that organization called World Relief Seattle is partnering with a local food bank, doing all kinds of things it wouldn't ordinarily do. So demand is up, costs are up, they're doing more, and revenues are declining because they're dependent on, in part, just everyday gift givers, donors who have been affected themselves by the economy. So this is a huge problem, and it's why it's so important that those who can step up, whether big institutional foundations or individuals who still do have the resources to give, step up at a level that really will require some sacrifice and break from the norm in order to make sure that these organizations can be responsive to the incredible pressures that they're under. Yeah, I love that point. And it feels like there's a convergence of sorts. And we keep talking about this. We love Peter Diamandis' work and one of his latest books called The Future is Faster Than You Think is all about trends and this idea of convergence where multiple factors rise and form at the same time, the coming together of forces. So we're seeing that not only in the business sector, but in the nonprofit philanthropy space as well. And it feels like to to talk to what you're sharing, we have a reevaluation of value. What is value? How do we create it? How do we receive it? How do we perceive it? Meaning we're having this incredible dialogue in the inequities of humanity around our own worth personally, right? Is that own worth different based on the color of our skin, our culture, our language, our upbringing? In the philanthropy sector, what I'm hearing you talk about is this reflection of where do we create value? If value is not derivative of revenue only, where can we create community engagement? Where can we create impact? Where can we create social good through our cause that's of real value to the constituents, to the donors, and to the staff that is putting in that time and effort. And it's interesting when you're talking about a lot of the new blood in philanthropy leadership is coming from business. We're seeing an incredible like business leaders coming over to the philanthropy sector as CEOs, right? And I'm curious about that disconnect of value. If we're placing all the value on revenue, profitability, scale, then we have a big mismatch in what our community and constituents need if they're perceiving value otherwise. Can you talk to that? Like, Do you agree that value in the sense of beyond revenue is becoming more important to the philanthropy sector? And how do we deal with that? I don't know, Jen. I mean, I I guess I feel like it's always been important and that what we've seen over the last 20 years, though, is I think a tendency to overvalue business experience. And I actually think, I'm not sure that I have the data to back this up. I'm seeing fewer 
appointments of like McKinsey partners as foundation presidents than we were like 10 or 15 years ago. And more of a recognition that the nonprofit sector is different and distinct. I mean, like take performance measurement, for example, like to your point about how you measure value. I mean, like ultimately you can finally compare companies on some pretty simple universal measures. You can't do that in philanthropy, right? There is no analog to ROI. Measurement is not just about calculating financial ratios. So there is this kind of simplistic narrative that we've heard over the last couple of decades where somehow business is viewed as rigorous and philanthropy is not. But actually, you know, what I learned in my MBA program didn't tell me anything about how you would actually evaluate the impact of an effort to focus on reducing childhood obesity, for example. I learned how to calculate financial ratios, which is way, way easier, but isn't the measure of a nonprofit or philanthropic effort. And then I learned how to analyze things in a competitive context where it's zero sum Uber's market share relative to Lyft, but in a philanthropic and nonprofit context, it's about the collaborative dynamics. For example, like how does the homeless shelter work with the drug treatment center to ensure that homeless addicts get what they need, right? Like it's a totally different set of dynamics. And like you said, like the way you think about value is completely different. So I think a lot of the folks we see coming out of the business world who do come into nonprofit or philanthropy jobs, they often stumble because they, they don't fully understand that. A quick anecdote on that. And then a, a follow-up question to the transformation that the sector I think is, is starting to undergo. You talked about scale a big part of Plenty's work in the nonprofit sector is with larger national organizations who've kind of lost their way and have big national fundraising programs that start to underperform. And in almost every case, when we pull it apart, it's because someone came in and said, well, we can scale, we can get, there's a, wow, there's efficiencies in staffing, there's efficiencies in management. And someone hasn't realized that the whole product that drives it is personal relationships at the local level. And it's the first thing people don't know how to value. So they undervalue the contribution of the local staff. When they cut out the local staff, they cut out all the relationships with the community that actually are the funding mechanism. So, and we've lived through that project time and we've probably done three dozen projects like that. And the advice is always reinvest locally in people. So to bridge that to where both of you are going, one of the other reasons we love Center for Effective Philanthropy and your voice is that you are what we sometimes are, which is you're a nudge and you're trying to get people to be a little more Thank you. In, in a good way, yeah. a good, we consider ourselves <laughs> a good a positive nudge. You've challenged the sector to drop some of the models that don't work to be more aggressive in how they spend, honestly, and challenge organizations, especially right now, to put money on the table. So we're recording this, for those of you listening, not sure when you're listening, but we're recording this in mid-June. There are some big announcements this week from traditionally more conservative foundations about how they might fund. And one in particular, the Ford Foundation, looks like it's going to mobilize some other foundations to issue bonds so that they can put more capital into 
the sector right now. Would love to hear you talk about that and what you think about. I'm sure you're encouraged by that, but I'd, l- I'd love to hear what you think about what this necessity is going to invent for us in this sector. In Giving Done Right, one of the things I argue toward the end is that foundations are uniquely positioned to be counter-cyclical forces. I believe, actually, some people don't, but I believe in the value of perpetual foundations, foundations with a long, long time horizon. But one of the advantages that they have is that long time horizon, and they can they can look at when other revenue sources are on the decline and counter it by stepping up their giving. Unfortunately, that's not typically what people do. They tend to retrench when nonprofits retrench, and they tend to default toward five, five and a half percent, sort of the minimum payout. So there were a group of us, nine leaders of different philanthropy serving organizations that came out in early April and said, now is the time for foundations to step up their giving. I'm not claiming any causality. I think Ford and the other foundations were having those conversations before we said that, I'm quite sure. But obviously, it was incredibly heartening to see Ford, Mellon, Kellogg, MacArthur, and one other come together and say they're going to put another $1.7 billion out That's huge. And of course, now the big question is how that gets allocated, obviously, and lots of people talking about that. Doris Duke, that was the fifth. That's really, really powerful. It's also important to note that there were other foundations, smaller foundations, that have done this even quicker, like Libra Foundation, which is a Pritzker family led by Crystal Haling, who used to be on the CEP board. I mean, within a week or two of it being clear how severe this crisis was, they said, we're doubling our grant making focusing it all on social justice-oriented organizations. Mary Reynolds Babcock did something similar. Jeff Skoltz said he would step up his giving significantly. So I think all of this is really good. And you can step up your giving massively, whether you do it through the creative financing that those five foundations are doing or some other way, without threatening perpetuity. And there's been this kind of unfortunate tendency not to just focus on protecting the like real purchasing power of the endowment over time, looking at that since inception, which for most of these foundations has increased dramatically. So they've done much more than that because the boards, which tend to be like you were saying, Jeff, very financially conservative, the tendency is to focus on whatever the peak purchasing power was. Oh, that's where we have to get back to as quickly as possible. But the discussion in the boardroom needs to be about the mission and about the moment and what this moment calls people to do. And it's not to follow the usual norms. That's for sure. Yeah. I love that you just landed on that last piece because I would tell you like so much of our work is this idea of what we were sharing with you earlier about the rebelieve, reminding people why it matters. Why are they there in the first place? And when we're on the hamster wheel, sprinting to create scale, profitability, revenue, et cetera, we lose sight and the staff lose sight, the leaders lose sight of what is that magnetism? What is the care behind the cause that will literally mobilize the community to give a shit and to grow in the first place. And it sounds so simple, but it is unbelievable. I would say, Jeff, almost every day we are reminding another company, another nonprofit to say, why are you here? What is your mission? And is it relevant today? Like, does it have 
the same intent and relevancy in our climate and culture? Does it need to evolve and fine tune and adapt? And would imagine what we're seeing too is the donors are asking those same questions about what they care about now and what causes align to that care. So maybe you could share and expand a little bit about that idea, like what do you think donors need to think about now, given the foundational, this new impact, this new funding that's coming into philanthropy through grants, but also their choice within it. So now we have individual donors, we have high net worth donors, we've got a whole bunch of different flavors now with choice around these cause areas. What do donors need to think about today that might have been different than a year ago, six months ago, a few years ago? I think part of it is what I talked about at the beginning, which is I think you got to think about the equity component of whatever you're doing. I would hope that everybody was thinking about that before. I mean, to give a really simplistic example, I live in Concord, Massachusetts. People tend to give very locally. I want to do something about COVID. I should not give locally, right? So it, this doesn't make sense because in this particular little community where I live, the rate of infection is low. Yes, there are some people impacted. The rate of infection is low. The philanthropic capacity is high. So if I want to do something, I should think I need to be data-driven and recognize that I'm going to do a lot more good giving in Brockton or Lawrence where the rate of infection is high, the philanthropic capacity is, is relatively low. And to think about the racial inequities and to be able to simultaneously understand that this crisis impacts everyone. I lost my uncle to COVID a couple of weeks ago. Everybody's got something and that it is massively disproportionately impacting those who have already faced the greatest barrier. So I think that's got to be front and center in our thinking about our philanthropy. Then there's this tension, there's this balance between all of us have organizations we were supporting before this crisis. So we have to think about them. And if we still care about them, which we probably do, can we give now whatever we gave in December so that they know that they don't have to worry about whether we're going to give in December to provide as much can we make a multi-year commitment as much certainty to nonprofits as possible? It's harder for individuals to do that. Institutional donors surely can do that. Can we give in a way that is unrestricted, right? If there was ever a stupid time, it's always a stupid time to be overly restrictive about your giving. If you trust the organization and you trust the leadership, you should trust that they will know how to allocate their budget and not try to tell them, oh, you run a food pantry, but I only want my dollars to go for the potatoes, not the rent or the staff who coordinate the volunteers who serve the potatoes, right? This makes no sense, but it makes even less sense now when every organization is adapting, they need the flexibility of unrestricted funding. So, I mean, those are a few things. I love it. I, I'm going to give you an amen for that last point too. Let's go to the other side of that equation. Before we started recording, we were sharing a story about that, again, I think we've experienced every day for the last 90 days of being on the phone with a small nonprofit. And most people listening might not know that the huge majority of nonprofits are small in this country, a few hundred thousand dollars. The ones you know and that advertise on TV are, don't make up the vast majority of the philanthropic organizational community. 
And as Jen said, they were, they're grappling with, we call it the rebelief, but they're grappling with a real existential crisis. They don't have enough money to function and need to ask right at the time that they are most concerned that donors won't be responsive. So let's take the same question on the other side of it. What are you saying to the 501c3 organizations that you're talking to about how you ask right now and how you stay relevant without doing some of the gymnastics that unfortunately some groups who have no standing to talk about COVID or no standing to talk about racial equality are kind of doing to just vacuum money off the couch. How do you, how do you ask in an authentic way in this moment of time? Well, first of all, and I'm pretty sure you agree with this, you got to ask. Maybe if you've got tons of unrestricted reserves and you really don't have to ask, well, then great, don't. And direct people to the organizations that are really doing crucial work right now that are in some jeopardy. I mean, I think everything's upside down right now, right? So for years, people have said, this is a little bit of a detour, but I'll get to your point. Like people have talked about earned revenue as if it's like the panacea and the key to sustainability. Often people who come out of the business world talk to nonprofits about earned revenue as if it's like a new idea. You know, I just thought of something, earned revenue, but earned revenues is as old as nonprofits, right? You think Goodwill, Girl Scout cookies, museum with admission fees, tuitions, whatever. Earned revenue is not new. It's always been a huge chunk of nonprofit revenue, but nor is it more sustainable than contributed. In fact, right now it's way less. And so we just did this report that's on our website about what nonprofits are experiencing and that the biggest challenges revenue-wise are the organizations that are dependent on earned revenue. That's fascinating. I just want to give a huh to that because it makes sense when you think about it that way. I hadn't thought about it that way though. It's fascinating. For the listeners, can you just explain real quick, Phil, just to clarify what the difference between earned and contributed are? Contributed revenue comes in a few different flavors, right? There's foundation funding, and then there's individual donors. And there's individual donors giving larger gifts, individual donors giving smaller gifts. So when we look at what revenue in our research, when we looked at which revenue sources have been most impacted, the most stable revenue source, not surprisingly, has been foundation contributions, right? Then large gifts have not been affected negatively as much as small gifts have. Again, not that surprising. But then the most negatively affected has been earned revenue fee for service. So what does that mean? One of the organizations that I write about in the book is called UTech. They work with gang-involved young people to recruit them out of gang life. And then they get them employed in a social enterprise. They have a mattress recycling facility. They have a woodworking shop that makes cutting boards that, that get sold to Whole Foods. And they have a cafe. And then they have all kinds of other supports that they give the young people as they're getting, getting a job and getting ready to move on from UTech into the regular labor market. So COVID hits of their $8.5 million budget, I don't know, like $1.5 million maybe is from earned revenue. The rest is contributed. COVID hits, they have to shut down the social enterprises, but they still have to pay the young people. It's their only source of income and serve them in various other ways. So all of a sudden, they've lost a big chunk of revenue. So they've got to go out, which they've been doing, to all their donors and explain and say, look, 
we have to continue to be there for our young people. We have to continue to be on the streets trying to ensure that there isn't gang violence. Our costs are going up because whereas normally we feed people at our facility during the weekday, now we're delivering them lunches by car because they can't come in. So I think nonprofits just have to be really assertive and communicative with their donors about the way in which this is impacting them, the way in which they're shifting and pivoting and what they need from donors. And it's, it's hard. And then obviously people have to take a hard look at what they're doing that they don't have to do right now where they can cut costs. And there's just no way around that. They're brutal choices that folks are having to make right now. And we saw in this survey that we conducted of nonprofits, 80% had already cut back programs or services in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. That certainly supports the conversations that we're having around what we know when we ask staff reduction and revenue reduction or budget reduction, what is it? And it's the ranging of 80% budgets slashed in half or 50% staff eliminated or furloughed at the moment. And then a variety of some nonprofits not having that experience, quite honestly, and living through a protective way. And maybe it is because of their contributed versus earned revenue model and the mix of that, which is fascinating. I think one of the things that we're seeing, too, to your point, is that thoughtfulness of spend requires people, leaders, staff to slow down. And COVID, we're living through the forced rest period, right, where we were all forced to slow down. Our hope is that we can continue a little bit of that cadence going forward. So the thoughtfulness around, does this really serve our organization and serve the people we're trying to help? Is it the best use of our time and resources now? Is there a different way to be doing this virtually versus in person? Can we create a more distributed model and kind of cutting out the noise and the distortion that's really easy to overlook when you're running fast, right? When you're making quick decisions and you're trying to grow, 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 grow or whatnot. That thoughtfulness of, yeah, just like in terms of time, money, resources, impact, what makes a difference. And then sharing that with the donors. I think that storytelling, the context, the why we're spending, the what we're doing why we're doing it matters more than ever now. And it feels a bit, would you agree that we kind of lost that in the, I don't know, just the climate of philanthropy a little bit that we kind of have been at surface level. And it's this time is asking us to go deeper into sharing why we're doing what we're doing and why it matters. I totally agree. And it's hard. I, I mean, it's also really hard. And you all would, I think, understand this maybe better than me because on the fundraising front, like there are so many requests coming in. There's so much, it's like giving Tuesday every day now in your inbox. How do you communicate in this environment where people feel quite overwhelmed? Thoughtfully, intentionally is what our answer has been. And this is why our side of your work is this is why we need institutional donors and foundations and responsible boards who will let their executive teams spend some of the reserves to slow down and not the number of spray and pray digital campaigns out right now. It's staggering. And 
this is another podcast, but organizations have also, I think, I'm not exactly sure who's giving this advice, but everyone's using political tactics in the nonprofit space and saying, give to us by midnight. We have this urgent deadline to meet, like, it's just terrible fundraising gimmicky practices. And I think our advice has been to try to get people to slow down. You're not going to run out of money today, are you? So let's measure twice, cut once, think about how we want to present ourselves, engage our donors in conversation potentially before we ask them, ask them how they want to make a difference. And the groups that we have worked with that have done that, even though it seems counterintuitive, right? You get thrown off the boat, you want to start swimming, but slow down, look around, figure out where land is first. And the groups I think that we're seeing have had the most success have actually reached out to donors before they've asked and said, how are you doing? We're checking in on you. Want to make sure you know your support is important. Want to understand what your capacity is. And we do have organizations that are seeing huge increases in commitments from businesses and from foundations. So I think taking that all together, it's, I feel like we say this every day, Jen, it's an odd thing to say, but we're ultimately optimistic about the changes this is going to create for society and the sector specifically. It's tragic, the cost. And that's something I think that as we start to look ahead to the next six or 12 months, we all have to do a reckoning on how will we make sure we don't pay this cost again to get to some of the systemic changes that we all know need to be made. And I think that might be another episode, but it's a good thing for us as leaders, as conscious leaders to start reflecting on right now, because I think the change is going to be positive. The cost is going to be too great. The definition of philanthropy is the love of humanity and really getting back to the purpose of people, of connecting person to person, passion to passion, human to human is what the philanthropy sector is meant to serve. It's meant to inspire. It's meant to help create hope for humanity. And so really re-architecting what we're focusing on. Are we focusing on people and the planet or have we lost our focus in the minutia, in the pressure, in the crisis? And our hope is that with this time, we're really being invited to go back to our roots of what philanthropy is in the first place and how we can help really raise the potential of humanity to come together, not split apart. And we believe that's possible for sure. Is there anything, Phil, that you would like to share that we have not covered or would like the listeners to know about where they can find more information and maybe tell us the name of your book and invite the the listeners to read it. Yeah, sure. It's called Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. Our website is cep.org. And there's a lot of stuff on our blog related to what's going on for philanthropy and the nonprofit sector right now. So I'd urge you to check that out. Only last thing I would say in response to what both of you were just talking about, slowing down. I think one of my mentors is someone named Nancy Kane, who was a professor of mine in business school. And she has a book called Forged in Crisis about five great leaders from history. And she often talks about 
the fact that the best thing to do sometimes is not to decide when there's so much uncertainty. You don't always have that luxury, but you sometimes do. And I would just say that that is particularly true right now because there's so much uncertainty and so many different ways things could go the next six months. And I'm not a big fan of scenario planning in general, but if there was ever a time for scenario planning, it's now because the world could look very different in January and it could look one of a number of different ways. And we as leaders have to be prepared for those different different possibilities. So that was my only thought, just listening to Jen, you and Jeff and your comments. But I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and chat with you both. It's been great to have you. We'll have to have you back on to talk about our view of strategy and being here now versus being in the what if. I want to just amplify again, the book is called Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. It's a great read. And for the many nonprofit executives listening, you have heard us talk about Center for Effective Philanthropy because often we get requests about, I need some data for my board about what is going on with X. And CEP is one of, if not the first port of call for a lot of that kind of research. So if you've not been to their site, it's really well worth digging into and worth it subscribe to their blog as well. It's very rich and very well done content. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining us. We hope to have you on again. There's a lot of juicy topics we can explore (laughs) together. And if you're listening, we just encourage you to subscribe and share and rate this podcast. We appreciate your input and we'll talk to you all soon. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for tuning in. Join the conversation and learn more at www.plentyconsulting.com.